Let's pray as we get ready to enter into the Word. Lord, we thank you for your Word. We thank you for your Holy Spirit and how you make these words that were written so long ago come to life, even today, as they speak to us in the places we find ourselves today. We thank you in advance. Lord, we ask that you will open our hearts and our minds so that your Holy Spirit can speak to us, Father. For for I I pray, as I pray every week, Lord, may they not be my words, but be they may they be your words, filled with the power of your Holy Spirit, so that we can hear what we need to hear from you today. We trust you, we love you, and we want your will done in our lives. In your name we pray. Amen. All right. So today, we are going to be jumping in time. Uh, so we have been... We've been pretty consistently going chronologically through the stories in the Bible. We've jumped over a couple of them. And then we made a big jump to Moses a couple of weeks ago. And we talked about the burning bush. And then last week, Joshua talked to you guys about um, the plagues. When Moses went back to Egypt and he delivered, well, God used Moses to deliver the people out of Egypt. And he did such a good job of explaining how God systematically, through the ten plagues, dismantled the hierarchy of the Egyptian godheads. All of the different gods that they put their trust in, they put their faith in, God showed each god that he was God, the only true God. And it was a really tough pill for the Egyptians to to swallow. Uh, They just kept, the Pharaoh kept getting more and more stubborn as they went on, right? But Josh made a great point that God wasn't only doing this to show the Egyptians who he was, but to remind the Israelites of who he was. The Israelites had been in Egypt for over 400 years The Egyptian gods were second-hand to them. They knew who they were. And honestly, probably some of them gave tribute to them. The Israelites, being God's chosen people, were not the most faithful always. You can look through their entire history, and they are constantly swaying away from the true God and going to whatever God is around them. And this was no different. And you and we see this as they move out of Egypt and they get into the wilderness. Moses is up on Mount Sinai. I mean, they've just experienced 10 gigantic earth-changing plagues. They've walked across a Red Sea that is no longer wet. I mean, the point you made about the mud and how God not only dried up and moved the water, he literally parched the earth they walked on so they could walk dryly across the ground. Like, that's crazy, right? So they get across that experience that and to see that and to to walk past walls of water. They go for a small journey to a big mountain and Moses goes up into the mountain. He's gone for a little while. He's gone for 40 days. It's a long time. So when you calculate the time, roughly it's been about a month and a half. The Israelites have been experienced all this. They go for about a month and a half without really hearing from Moses. And what do they do? They said, we need to make ourselves a, uh, something to worship. Get all the gold, all the silver, everything they were just given by the Egyptians, and let's boil it all down and make into something a giant. They made that giant calf, right? 
<sighs> Israelites, you just, they're not always just, they don't always get it. But I think they're typical of all people. We just don't always get it. Okay, Moses comes down, he's so livid, he throws the Ten Commandments on the ground. He talks to them about how God is the one true God, and they kind of, oh yeah, right, 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 we're all on board now. Right? They go, they go to the promised land, the place God has promised them to be. This was going to be the land he was going to give them back. And Moses says, okay, send in 12 guys, one from each of the tribes of Israel, we're going to send in our spies, they're going to do some recon, and then we're going to make a plan on how we're going to go in. Twelve of them go in, they survey the land, they see the people, they see the cities, they see the crops, they come back, they rave about how there's so much produce, there's grapes the size of golf balls, or soccer balls, I mean they're huge, you know, you've seen the pictures, right, with two guys carrying a giant thing of grapes, I don't know how true that is, but I don't know, I wasn't there, and Talk about it. flowing with milk and honey. It's just this amazing place. But the people are giants. They have huge cities. We're not really probably capable of doing that. Ten of the guys are saying that. Two guys, Caleb and Joshua, are both like, we could do it. God, who has literally just spread the Red Sea, who has done all these plagues, he can make it so we can go in and do it. He promised it, and it will be done. Well, the ten guys... They got a grassroots system going. They went and they talked to all of their people who got talked to all their people. All of a sudden, the bulk of the Israelites come to Moses grumbling and have been told by the twelve, uh, the ten spies that this is impossible. We can't do it. And Moses is swayed by them. Popular vote won. They don't go in. God punishes them. He tells them that an entire generation will die off and not enter the promised land because of their lack of faith. So for 40 years, they are wandering. We say the wilderness, and in most of our minds, we think of a just giant desert, and some of it was desert. God takes them on a very purposeful journey. He takes them back the way they come. They came. He takes them back to Mount Sinai. He takes them back to the Red Sea and makes them journey for years along the coast of the Red Sea to remind them, listen, guys, you know how you got to cross that? That was me. You don't need to worry. You don't need to worry. They're going through the wilderness, grumbling, complaining, talking about how they want to go back to Egypt. At least there was food there that, you know, they they didn't like eating the manna. They didn't have enough water, all the things. And they want to go back to the way it was. They want to go back to the gods that they kind of understood better. Because this God was a new kind of God to them. They knew about God, but they didn't really know what he was like personally like they do now. And they, they were wanting the familiar. Okay, so for 40 years, they are wandering as the whole generation that said no dies off. Do you think God was just sort of letting them meander? No. He takes them on that journey of, remi- of reminding them. And then he begins the long route back to the promised land. Because when they first go, they take a beeline straight to it. They had GPS. They knew exactly where they're going. It was a fast, quick route. The second trip, it's the scenic route. It is long and it is not exciting. And it takes them through pretty much every kingdom on that side of the Jordan River. 
Now, we have to remember who the Israelites were. The Israelites were former slaves. They were not a well-trained militia. They were not an army of any form. They probably barely had weaponry. They were just a large group of people. They were refugees moving through the land. And every country they came to, every kingdom they came to, an emissary would come out from the king and would say, Who are you? And they would say, We are the Israelites, which instantly sparked fear in almost every kingdom they came to because every kingdom has now heard about the ten plagues, has now heard about the people who walked across the ocean without getting wet. The fame of God has gone before them, and they are afraid of them. And the Israelites say, we're going to just travel through your land. We will not take anything that is not ours. We will not try to conquer anything. Just let us pass through. We will pay for any food that we buy. We, we, we take, basically. And every single king raised his army and brought them against the Israelites to conquer them because they were afraid. Every single one of them lost. The Israelites are not an army. They are a group of people. And every single one of them, God conquered the enemy army. And then said, this land is now yours. So by the time they get to the promised land, the Israelites controlled a very large chunk of land on the other side of the Jordan. So much so that when they actually do cross the, um, the Jordan and they divide up the land in the future, like two whole tribes actually go back across the Jordan to live on the other side of the Jordan in the land that they conquered over there. Okay? So you need to understand this because this is where, this is all creating the setting for what will happen on, um, at Jericho. Okay, so Moses is the one leading all, leading them through all of this stuff right before they get to the Jordan and they're about to cross. Moses is not allowed to enter into the promised land. And so he is directed by God to make Joshua, who is one of the 12, stripe, 12 slate, uh, spies, him and Caleb, the only two spies who could enter into the promised land because they believed that it was possible. He makes Joshua the leader. Okay, so this is on the east side of the Jordan. Okay. And then Moses gives a big long speech, which is basically the book of Deuteronomy. And he reminds the people of the law and the way that God's going to provide for them. So I know that when we read the Bible chronologically, I have always gotten to the place where when I hit to, or this is the way I used to be, when I get to Leviticus, it was like, Oh Lord, help me to get through the, get through Leviticus, and then I would be like, oh my goodness, Numbers. Who wants to read about Numbers? Let me tell you, Numbers is one of the coolest books in the Bible because it tells you the story of all of those battles. I mean, it is like a, it's a true movie. It's really great. Read Numbers. It's so fun. That's where you get um, Balaam and his donkey who talks to him. It's good. Good stories. Anyway, Moses gives a big long speech reminding the Israelites of who God is and sends them off, sends them off with Joshua, and he goes up into the mountains and he, he dies. Joshua rallies the troops. He gets ready to go across the Jordan. God speaks to him and says, listen, this is what I want you to do. I want you to send the priests across with the Ark of the Covenant. The Ark of the Covenant represents the seat of God. 
Okay, it is called the mercy seat. It's the place, it's God's throne on earth. Okay, so the priests who have this on big long poles, because they're not allowed to touch the Ark of the Covenant, another great story if you ever want to learn uh, about a priest who tried to save the Ark from falling off of a cart. He, he went to grab it. He died. Anyway, they get this on poles. There's four of them, two on front, two in the back. And he says, now start having them walk out into the Jordan River. Now, at this time of the year, when we believe the Battle of Jericho happened, the Jordan is in flood state, meaning it is full to the brim and overflowing. It is a raging river. They go in. They take some steps in. They take some more steps in, and the water begins to recede and part, reminding them of the Red Sea. It parts, and the, the ark goes into the middle of the river and stops, and the people of Israel cross over. At this point, there are roughly two to two and a half million Jews walking across the Jordan River. So now, when we think about, I want you to picture this in your head. So the Jordan River is here. Jericho is a very good city that's within sight of the Jordan River. They have river view property. They see the tribe of Israel on the other side of the river, camped. They're there for several, for a while. They're camped there. They know who they are because they are the Israelites. They know that they have conquered all the land on that side of the river. They know that their God is the one who supposedly, supposedly, because, you know, the people of Jericho weren't there, supposedly separated the Red Sea so that they could cross the river. They are the people that supposedly their God basically decimated the greatest nation in the world so that they would be freed. And they're on the other side of the river. They're less than a couple miles away. Luckily, the river is really full. We're, we should be safe. All of a sudden, the river stops and the people walk across. Think of the fear that is being going over waves and waves of the, the people of Jericho. They are terrified because here comes a nation of people, two to two and a half million people crossing a river that they should not be able to walk across and coming to their doorstep. And they set up camp. They set siege to the city. This is where we find our passage today. So if you are able to turn to Joshua chapter 6, we are going to read this whole chapter, okay? This is the battle of Jericho. I say battle, it wasn't much of a battle, but we're going to, learn, we're going to talk about all that. So here we go, chapter 6, verse 1 of the book of Joshua. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. You see the fear? They're terrified. They don't want anyone to leave or come in because they don't want a weakness in their wall. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the, in front of the ark. On the seventh day, March around the city seven times with the priest blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, the whole army will give a loud shout. Then the wall will, the city, the walls of the city will collapse and the army will go up everyone straight in. 
So Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of them, in front of it. And he ordered the army, advance, march around the city with an armed guard do, um, going ahead of the Ark of the, Cove- Ark of the Lord. When, God, when Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carried the sev- carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the Ark of the, of the Lord's Covenant followed them. The armed guards marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this, um, all this time the trumpets were sounding. But Joshua had commanded the army, Do not give a war cry. Do not raise your voices. Do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout. Then shout. So he had the, he had the ark of the, of the Lord carried around the city, circling at once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning, and the priests took up the Ark of the Lord. Seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the Ark of the, Lord, of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them, and the rear guard followed the Ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. On the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that... On that day, they circled the city seven times. And the seventh time around, when the priest sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. The city and all that is in it um, are to be devoted to the Lord. Only Rahab the prostitute and all who are with her in her house shall be spared, because she hid the spies we sent. But keep away from the devoted things, so that you will not bring about your own destruction by taking any of them. Otherwise, you will make the uh, you will make the camp of Israel liable to destruction and bring trouble on it. All the silver and gold and the articles of bronze and iron are sacred to the Lord and must go into His treasury. Then the trumpet sounded. The army shouted at the sound of the trumpet. When the when the men gave a loud shout, the walls collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. They devoted the city to the Lord and destroyed. With the sword, every living thing in it, men and women, young and old, cattle and sheep, sheep and donkeys. Joshua said to the two men who had spied out the land, go into the prostitute's house and bring her out and all who belong belong to her in accordance with your oath to her. So the young men who had done the spying went in and brought out Rahab, her father and mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belonged to her. They brought out her entire family and put them in a place outside the camp of Israel. Then they burned the whole city and everything in it, and they put the silver, the gold, and the articles of bronze and iron into the treasury of the Lord's house. But Joshua spared Rahab the prostitute with her family and all who belonged to her, because she hid the men Joshua sent to spy as spies to Jericho, and she and she lives among the Israelites to this day. At that time, Joshua pronounced the, this solemn oath: "Cursed before the Lord is the one who undertakes." to rebuild this city, Jericho. At the cost of his firstborn son, he will lay its foundations. At the cost of his youngest, he will set up its gates. So the Lord uh, so the Lord was with Joshua, and his fame spread throughout the land. The word of the Lord. All right. Jericho was a big city, and it was heavily fortified. A very thick wall. All right? And once you secure the gates of a big city like this, there's not much you can do without siege weapons to get in. 
Uh, you can you can wait them out and hope that they run out of supplies inside and then they have to give up, but that's not what was going to happen here. The Lord told Joshua, listen, I'm giving you the city. It's already done. It's determined. I want you to walk around, but I want you to lead the host with the, the ark of the Lord. And I want you to take seven priests and they're going to blow horns in front of the ark. And you're going to put a guard in front of them to make sure they're safe. And then I want you and the rest of the army to walk around the whole city in silence, besides the trumpets, for six days, one time each day. And then on the seventh day, we're going to do something different. So that's what Joshua does. He tells the priests, they get ready, they get their horns, they get the ark, they head out, the guards establish in front of the priests, and then the rest of the army trails behind them, and they make the perimeter of the city, blowing the trumpets of the Lord. One time, Joshua reminds the men, don't say anything. Don't say a single word. I wonder what the people in Jericho are thinking. They're expecting this massive army that has taken over the bulk of the land on the east side of the Jordan to, to be ready to go to war. They think we're safe inside of our city. All of a sudden, there's this trumpet sound going off, and there's a parade happening around the city. I bet you that they think it's funny. Maybe at first they're a little weary of it, but after it's gone around and they see nothing happen, the second day, I bet you more people gathered on the wall to watch this procession. And then I think on day three, more people showed up. On day four, I bet you the people brought their families. you got to see this. This is crazy. On day five, again. On day six, again. And then on day seven, Joshua tells the priest, listen, we're going to go around, and he tells the whole army this, we're going around seven times this time. And on the seventh circuit, when the trumpets begin, we are going to shout as loud as we can. And then the Lord will deliver the city to us. They do what they do. They get out there. The people on Jer in Jericho are probably watching. They start to make their circuit. Everybody's they're doing the exact same thing they've always done. But all of a sudden they don't stop. They begin to go again. Well, that's different. They go around again. And then they go around again. And then they go around again. Okay, this is, this is unusual. This is not what they've been doing. I bet you they got a little nervous about this. And then they hit that seventh circuit. And they begin to blast that trumpet. And the people of Israel, the entire army, I don't know how many people that would be. I'm assuming it's almost all the men of fighting age are walking around. So we're probably looking at roughly seven and... 750,000, maybe a million people going around the city, screaming and shouting to the tops of their voices. And as they complete that circuit, the walls collapse. When I was young and I heard this story, I thought, man, how powerful is God that he would just break those walls down? So cool, right? And then I got older and I thought, Man, that's so cool. He broke those walls down. And then I got older and I went to college and then I got, and, and I started talking to other people in college who were like versed in other things other than me. And I got to talking to some of my science friends and they're like, well, you know that, um, that story is like, there's a lot of science behind that story. And I said, what? I said, no, God just knocked the walls down. He goes, how, what do you think? the pounding of 
a million people's feet on a ground would do to the ground around them. I'm like, I don't, I don't know. Because I'm not that versed in science. I mean, I know some stuff. I think it, it, it creates a frequency within the ground. It creates a frequency within the ground that those walls are standing on. I'm like, oh, okay, cool. And then I'm like, but that doesn't make the walls fall down. And he goes, but then think about doing it um, seven times. All of a sudden, those walls are starting to match the frequency of the ground. Okay, I'm not, I'm still not getting it there. And then, and and I'm from Washington, and um, so I'm a fan of the Seahawks. And yeah. It's almost football season. Anyway, side note. There is a ongoing feud between the Seahawks fans and the fans of the Kansas City Chiefs on who is the loudest fans. Now, with COVID, you know, we're, we're on a truce because we can't have, you know, the full capacity of the stadium in there. But when the capacity of each of those stadiums, which is only about 70,000 people, when they are all in there and they are all shouting at the top of their lungs for their team, do you know what happens? They create micro earthquakes. Like at, at CenturyLink, that's the stadium the Seahawks plan. There is a Richter scale in Seattle to register for earthquakes. And when there is a game happening, they have to tell the stadium or they have to tell the people that there are going to be readings on your Richter scale because of the game. They create earthquakes by their voices. It's the same thing in Kansas City. They do the same thing. They roughly range between a 1 to a 2 on the Richter scale. Which, to us, that's hardly, you don't notice the ground shaking at all. But the little Richter scale thing does. Okay, that's 70,000 people. Imagine... You have nearly a million people screaming at the top of their lungs. What kind of magnitude earthquake might you be able to create that way? You've already got the walls in some kind of a frequency rhythm of swaying, because that's what architecture does when it's tall. It, it, it sways to a frequency. It's not noticeable, but it happens. And then you, on top of that, take the voices of nearly a million people screaming at the top of their lungs for a prolonged period of time, and all of a sudden, you have God using physics to bring down the walls of a city. Now, when I heard that, I didn't think, well, that just debunks the fact that God could do it. I thought, how cool is it that God uses the laws of our world to do what he needed to do? He used these Jokers that are Israelites to walk around, to scream at the top of their lungs, and he created an earthquake with them. How cool is that? So cool. I love this story because of that. The walls collapse. Who knows how many people die because they're at the top of the walls watching the parade happen. The men charge into the city. A million people, I guarantee you, they're pretty much surrounding the city. They charge in. They kill everyone. They burn every building. They take everything of value and they give it to the Lord. Because that's how he commanded them to do it. This is a side note. This isn't about the wall of Jericho, but did you know that after the walls of Jericho, 
every other city that the Israelites conquer, they don't destroy them. They take them over, and they use them. They become theirs. But for some reason, and I'm going to tell you the reason, God told the Israelites, destroy Jericho. So much that he says, cursed is the man who tries to rebuild the city. Do you know why? Because God wanted his tribute first. We call it the tithe. The first of all of the land was given to God. All the gold, all the valuables were supposed to be given to God. Because he was the one who got the honor first. And then they didn't inhabit Jericho. They destroyed it because it was God's, not theirs. Every other, every other land and every other people after that, God gave to them. Gave them the cities. They were to go in and to, to take care of the people, but then they were to inhabit the land, inhabit the houses, take over the crops. Interesting side note. It's very cool when you think about it. There's a story following this where one of the guys kept one of the sacred things and, ooh, that was a bad thing. His whole family gets erased. They get killed because he kept one of the sacred things, one of the things that was supposed to be for God. All right. So what are we supposed to get from this? We don't live in Jericho, right? We're not, we're not normally going to war with a sieged city. But what is it we're supposed to hear out of this? I think it's this. Every single person has walls in their lives. Walls that they're going to come up against. And then walls that they themselves create. And I titled this sermon, No Walls Will Stand, because God will knock every wall down. Whether it's something that we need to conquer in front of us, whether it's something God's giving us in front of us, or whether it's something that we're protecting and we're kind of trying to keep to ourselves. And I'm guilty of both of those things. And I've seen the results of those things, where God has broken the the wall in front of me and has broken the wall that I myself has erected. You see, there is a, there was a wall between us and God as well for a very long time. It was our sin, right? God and us could not be in full relationship because we had rejected him. And that wall wasn't going to stand either. That wall had to come down. And the only way that wall could come down was to take something much greater than us just screaming at it. Because it was not a physical wall. It was a spiritual wall. And it could only be taken down by God himself. And he did it. He came to earth as Jesus Christ and he lived a life and he he went to the cross, and when he went to the cross, he took that wall upon himself. Without ever committing a single sin to put a brick into that wall, he took the entire thing onto his shoulders, and he died with it. So that 
when he rose from the dead, that wall was no longer between you and God. That wall was no longer between me and God. We have the ability now, with our faith in Jesus Christ, to be able to go back into relationship with God. Because he took the wall down. He destroyed it. And so often, people will go through life with that wall up still. It's one they've created. And God begs them to let him break it down. Because he won't break down that wall unless they want him to. And sometimes we we create those walls too. Whether we think God's really doing great in this part of my life, but I have to still be sort of in charge here. And God really wants to break those walls down. But we have to be participants in that by saying, go for it. You, you should come into this part of my life too. This journey that we're on as Christians is one where we're daily telling God, break the walls down. Help me to not rebuild them. Because God will break my wall down, and I am a master mason sometimes, and I'm quick to repair. And I have to be reminded, don't repair the wall. Maybe it's a relationship that you're in with another person, and you've erected walls, and maybe they've erected walls, and God is saying, I want to break those walls down. I want there to be oneness again. I want there to be health in your relationships. Just say, okay, do it, God. Break it. We'll take the wall down. He will deliver it for you. He'll deliver that part of your life to you. He'll allow you to grow in a different way than maybe you were already. He'll break those walls down and allow that relationship to be healed in a special way. He'll take those walls down that are in front of you so that you can continue to move forward in the path God has planned for you. Because if it is His will and we're seeking that will, no wall will stand. Will you pray with me? Lord, we love you. We thank you that you are the God who knocks over walls. It's so cool that you use nature to do it in Jericho. It is so cool that you use us and you wait for us to be participants in the knocking down of the walls in our lives. We thank you for that. We thank you for your patience when we say no. We ask your forgiveness when we rebuild the walls. We ask for your courage to say yes when you say, let me knock it down. Let me deliver this part of your life. Let me restore it and transform it. Just like you used Jericho as the first stepping stone to restore the promised land back to the Israelites. Every wall you knock down in our lives is a new area that's being restored as you continue to transform our hearts towards you. Lord, we trust you.
We love you. Thank you for who you are. Thank you for what you're doing. We thank you for this time and how you've spoken to us. Lord, continue to be in our lives every day. Continue to guide us. Lord, because we want your will above all else in our life. In your name we pray. Amen. You receive this benediction. As you go today, remember that the God who knocks down walls goes before you. And he will patiently wait for you. Take the steps and allow him to knock the walls down that need to come down in our lives. Be courageous and strong of heart. Just say yes. I go in peace. Christmas.